Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning, a former Defence Minister on what New Zealand needs to do next in Ukraine. Right now, Russia's seen as a rogue nation. It's a pariah. It's a war criminal. Then a Kiwi who worked with Elon Musk will tell us what he reckons will change on Twitter and the daily turmoil of life as a Russian New Zealander. For me, as a human being, I, I, I ask myself, what can I do? But first of all this morning, smash and grab. Tonight on One News, a smash and grab. Thieves becoming bolder and more brazen. There's been a number uh, that have been arrested, apprehended for a number of these. Some of them have been responsible for more than one. TikTok's no longer a platform for dance moves or mocking your mum. It's become the place to catch the latest crime being carried out. It's visceral and it's disturbing. We're left thinking of ourselves at those ages, of our own children, of children that we know, wondering how on earth we got to this point. A seven-year-old is among four children nabbed by police with stolen toys and other goods at a Hamilton shopping centre. What you don't see is these three making off from the dairy in their escape car. The driver, a 12-year-old girl. This is a really concerning trend we're seeing across the country. The reality is we have a whole bunch of really hurt kids who need support and care, then we need to respond to them. Police are concerned about a dramatic series of brazen robberies committed by predominantly young offenders. But this morning on Q&A we can reveal an expert report has just been published concerning the very children at the centre of these crimes. Clinical psychologist Professor Ian Lambie helped to prepare the report and is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora. How we fail children who offend and what to do about it, a breakdown across the whole system is the title of your report. What have you made of the offending that we've seen over the last couple of weeks? I think it's significant concern for the community, for obviously the victims of um, the crime. But I think it's really important to highlight the fact that actually these children that do this are also victims themselves and they would be way overrepresented in the care and protection system of our country. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well I think these kids would have been known to Orangatamariki they will be um, dropping out of education and they will have undiagnosed neurodevelopmental um, disorders and a whole range of behavioural disorders. And they'll be in families that are struggling to cope and struggling to provide adequate supervision support and will be marginalised by society. And I think we really need a compassionate and I think a holistic response to this that really looks at, as a community, what can we do and how do we keep these young people actually engaged in education and to live productive and good lives. So who's responsible for this? Well, ultimately, I think it's an interesting question. I think that what we do need to look at is actually um, how do we actually help these young people under the age of 14? And I think we have a very good youth justice system for 14 to 18 year olds. I think it's world leading. I think it really we have reducing crime rates and the um, number of young people going to the adult prison is reducing. But I think the gap is under 14 year olds and really we have to look at focusing on early intervention and how do we keep these young people at school and actually out of the youth justice system. And we haven't done that. This is one of the issues that you have considered in this report. Can you tell us a little bit more about your studies? Well, what we did is we, it's a three-year study. We looked at data. Uh, we also looked at case files. And we also interviewed whānau and actually professionals, lawyers that were working in the system. And really what we found is that these children were known to the system. They had repeated no notifications of care and protection at Rangatamariki. They were at the age of five, six, seven, eight years old. They were dropping out of school, disengaging education, getting expelled, and had significant behaviour problems which were very, very difficult for the teachers to work with. And they went on to actually, actually into the youth justice system and then into the adult system. And as a country, we knew this 30 years ago. We knew from the longitudinal study in Dunedin that there were two groups of youth offenders, mm. life course persistent offenders and adolescent limited. And we've never as a country focused on life course persistent offenders and emphasised early intervention enough. OK, talk to me a bit more about early intervention because I know when you look at the pictures on television of cars driving through malls yeah. or ram raiding dairies and, and liquor stores and all that sort of thing, it's very dramatic, right? And there are a lot of people who respond to that by saying, if these kids are able to commit these crimes, two things are happening. Number one, we're going too soft on crime. And number two, there is a failure within their families. What are the parents doing? 
Well, I don't think um, we don't think we're going soft on crime. I think we need to go smart on crime. And smart on crime is thinking about how do we want fewer victims, better use of our taxpayers' dollars, and what the evidence says about how to actually intervene with this group of children. And really, what we need to do is look at, you know, how do we deal with children that are between the ages of five and 14 years old that are out of education have behaviour problems, significant abuse and care issues, and what do we do and how can we provide the support and the interventions that are actually going to change their behaviour and improve their life outcomes? Can you give us uh, a steer on what that early intervention might actually look like in practice? In practice it would mean working with community groups, iwi provide, um, you know, there's a great programme um, called Startwell in South Auckland that works with um, at-risk families, with mothers who are really struggling, and they have, you know, produced very, very good results. So what is it's about getting into the family it's providing support it's giving them skills to actually parent better it's providing them with housing um, food those mm. sort of things and actually showing them how to get education with their kids and keep them at school that's really what it's about with this with this with the immediate immediate concerns around this spree in particular are there ways that our policymakers could be better supporting police to stop these crimes I think police are doing a very good job and actually to be honest I think police and the justice system are really the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. I think police do an amazing job at working, there's incredible community officers that work um, in the community engagement in a very constructive and supportive mm. way and I think um, we really need to focus on going earlier, health, Aranga Tamariki, education, those are the three key agencies that I believe need to be working together and, and um, engaging more with this group of young people because there are less than 200 of them. Mm. What we know is there are 200, except when we look at the adult prison population, mm. we've got a prob probably about 8,000. So you don't have to be very good at maths to know mm. that really this is where we should be focusing, early and younger. To be clear, the people in this report are the same people committing these crimes? Some of them are, some of them will be, yeah, absolutely, yeah. There's no doubt about that. How do you feel when, when, you, when, you look at, when you look at the drivers of these crimes from an intellectual perspective, how is it to then turn on the telly and see someone driving through a mall in a stolen car? It's, it's a concern. It's a concern for those people that are impacted. There's no doubt about it. You know, there are victims. Um, you know, we've all been victims of crime in some sort or other, and that's an awful experience. There's no doubt about that. However, what I do know about this report is it's a call for action. The right people know about this report and really what we need to do it, and, the government, and, the, and the government officials need to get together and actually work out an action plan of how we're going to implement it. OK, you talk to us a bit more about that. What is your message to policymakers watching this morning? My policy... Uh, yeah, to policymakers, I think... Um, how do we fund early intervention, say, in the Ministry of Education? How do we put more funds and support for intensive wraparound service in the Ministry of Education? Uh, a colleague of mine who's an uh, intermediate teacher, he had 10 children that he wanted to go to the IWS. Only two were able to go because of funding. So what happens to the other eight? So he might struggle with them in a school, but then what happens to them in five years, ten years' time? Do they end up in the, in the mental health system or do they end up in the criminal justice system with mental health problems? It's kind of, you know, we need to say... How do, we, how do we really focus on a cohort of ch children? The problem's solvable. You know, we're not talking about thousands of children. We're talking about a solvable, manageable problem. And how do we do this better? Is there a danger that we get caught up in a moral panic? And I don't want to, I don't want to underplay the seriousness of these yeah, crimes. Clearly serious. they are brazen. Clearly they're incredibly yeah. dangerous, yeah, right? Absolutely. But is there a danger that those of us in relatively comfortable positions look at those pictures and overstate the problem of youth offending? I think there is, and I think we need to give a considered and proportional response. And I think when we hear some of the responses from Oranga Tamariki and the police about what they're doing, I think that's really, really thoughtful, and, it, and it's a wise response. I think getting the, you know, the rhetoric of getting tough on crime is actually not very intelligent at all. Every bit of evidence would say that actually will make the problem worse. All right, Professor Irene Lambie, tēnā koe. Thank you very yeah, much sure. for your time. Thank you. After the break on Q&A, could we, should we, conundrum? Is it time New Zealand's SAS got more involved in the Ukraine war? Hoki mai, welcome back to Q&A. New Zealand needs to do more. That's the message from the former Minister of Defence, who thinks we're only doing the bare minimum to help Ukraine. As Defence Minister, former New Zealand First MP Ron Mark oversaw a modernisation programme that helped to better equip our forces. 
Now he's working with Christian charities providing humanitarian aid in Ukraine. We sat down in the glorious Carterton RSA and I began by asking Ron Mark what he thinks about the war. For those of us who study a little bit of military history and saw the way in which Putin launched his invasion, it's pretty much gone the way that uh, we predicted, uh, thought it would. I guess what did surprise everyone has been very pleasing uh, to see is the resilience and the professionalism of the Ukraini Ukrainian Defence Force and the outstanding leadership of President Zelensky. Uh, it's taken a while for NATO and the rest of the world to come on board, but clearly I think they're starting to realise that all the sabre-rattling from Mr Putin is, is exactly that, that despite the rhetoric, I, I would like to think that they are starting to realise that the moment he exercises a nuclear option, Russia is dead. Do you think that is a possibility? No, I'd, I'd like to think that behind the scenes, um, all of those NATO, um, Five Eyes, military, military, senior military officers are still maintaining a level of connectivity with their military counterparts in Russia. I'd like to think that behind the scenes this conversation is going on and people are making it very clear to their counterparts in Russia the consequences of such behaviour. I'd like to think that somewhere along the line, uh, people inside of Russia will realise that this is not sustainable and they will start to consider where Russia will be post a Ukrainian victory as a nation trying to survive and thrive in the international community. Right now, Russia is seen as a rogue nation. It's a pariah. It's a war criminal. And the future for Russia, even if they were to win, is not going to end well. And it's not going to be easy for them to regain a respected place within the international community. I think it's going to fundamentally change the way in which the UN operates because people are suddenly starting to see uh, how toothless the UN can be, uh, how slow it is, and I think finally it's woken up NATO to realise that, you know, they're there for a reason. And they have to, at a point, make a decision. And thankfully they've done that. They've done it well. Where I see some hope is in the $30 billion announcement out of the United States, the passing of um, the Lend-Lease uh, legislation so that they can send in not just uh, weapons, but technically advanced weaponry that will uh, change uh, the way Russia is able to operate. It's a pretty remarkable commitment that Joe Biden has put forward. It's a 50 billion New Zealand dollars in aid, including about 30 billion in military aid. But what do you think of New Zealand's contribution so far? Well, New Zealand was slow and, um, and clearly took a while to think about. I understand, I was surprised that the first paper that Penny Hanari took to Cabinet uh, which had apparently had as a recommendation that we should provide lethal aid, was turned down. I think clearly people started to realise that the international community were a little bit surprised and maybe disappointed with New Zealand. Whatever, New Zealand did make a decision to send something and, and providing money to buy weapons was an obvious step. The humanitarian assistance, the legal assistance, the intelligence officers, the C-130, these are all good things, body armour, these are, these are all good things, but they're low-hanging fruit. That is not where the big ask is going to be. Um, we will play this game where we will only send what they ask for, but what we don't say is behind the scenes we tell them what they could ask for. And um, so that's a diplomatic game. Um, those are diplomatic manoeuvrings that happen behind the scenes. The question will be, what more is New Zealand prepared to do to help Ukraine? What more should New Zealand be prepared to do to help Ukraine? Well, I think we should be open to a conversation. And this is where you get into the tricky ground when you start talking covert operations. And if you think back to uh, the last time the Soviet, uh, the Russia got bogged down was in Afghanistan in... Um, up against the Mojardine. Mm. 
we all now know that there were special force operators in there from 22 SAS from the United Kingdom. They would be, had been in there uh, for quite some time, training the Taliban, training them how to use more sophisticated weapons, training them on tactics and, uh, and strategies and organisation, uh, and helping them to implement their attacks. And, and the result was the result. Now, it's, this is not something that countries should or would talk about. But I'd like to think that behind the scenes, these conversations are being had around who's providing the training. Ukraine's fighting a war. It's trying to recruit new people. It's recruiting militia. It's trying to not only uh, train its, its recruits, but upskill its frontline soldiers in the use of some pretty sophisticated weaponry, the like of which New Zealand's never had. Is there a possibility that New Zealand SAS soldiers or special forces could be training forces that are fighting in Ukraine right now? I don't think that's happening right now. Right. Should that be happening? I think that's one of those prime ministerial questions um, that can only be answered by a prime minister. And I think the steer I would give you is that Helen Clark made such a decision when she deployed the SAS into Afghanistan, totally against the views we would we, we know of her party, um, but I would say that would be probably one of the most useful things New Zealand could do. But there's an important distinction there, right? That they're sending the SAS to Eastern Europe to assist with training, or to the UK to assist with training, especially on some of those complex weapon systems, and then they're sending the SAS into Ukraine in a more direct capacity to assist with some of that yeah. resistance. I think if, if any of the countries, the Western countries, or NATO countries in particular, were to be engaged in assisting Ukraine in such a way, that would never be spoken about. And you'd probably find out about it 10 years from now. And that's the way it should be. People should not be talking about special force deployments, um, unless, of course, you want to get all your people killed. And we don't want to be doing that. It, is, it also presents some very serious diplomatic uh, consequences. All I'm saying is that countries have done this sort of thing in the past. Those are the serious decisions that a prime minister and a cabinet have to make. And those are the sorts of questions that you would expect Ukraine mm. to specifically ask. You have been communicating with charities providing humanitarian assistance in Ukraine. Do you want to go? I've already, yeah, I'm, I'm keen uh, to go and see firsthand for myself. You know, I, it disappoints me, Jack, when I see some of the commentary on New Zealand social media. Um, I follow, I talk to people I know who are uh, security advisors who support the Ukraine government. Um, I talk to people I know who are providing humanitarian assistance and struggling uh, with the challenges that they meet. Um, one, getting to people, getting food and supplies into them, um, getting those that want to come out of Ukraine out to Romania and Poland. I absolutely am in awe of the work they've done and um, sometimes you feel a little useless sitting here in New Zealand not contributing and I don't like not contributing, I don't like not helping. I want to focus on things a little closer to home for a moment. Mm. And a pretty extraordinary comment from Australian Defence Minister Peter Dutton this week who said the best way to preserve peace in Australia especially when considering events such as the New Deal between the Solomon Islands and China, is to prepare for war. Do you agree with that? The military never declares war. It's the politicians who start the wars. And the best way you can assure yourself that when you do deploy your people that they're going to have every, the, the best chance possible of, of completing their mission safely and coming home is if you prepare them well, equip them well, train them well, brief them well, provide them with the very best intelligence that you can possibly uh, gather. And um, so, yes, the best way of preparing for, uh, of ensuring peace and security and stability is to prepare for war. Do we need to be combat capable for a potential conflict in the Pacific?
I think you've got to be combat capable to be able to respond to the needs of your strategic partners and your own interests, wherever that may be. Mm. And we live in a very complex environment right now. There are, there are numerous actors active, and, and we talked about in my strategic defence policy statement of 2018, which back then, uh, Jack, seemed to be quite a... got a few people quite excited. They, they got quite exercised at how bold it was. Well, look at today. I could argue that my strategic defence policy statement, um, in hindsight, should have been bolder because the threats are real. And if people, those people who consistently say that there is no threat from China, we're probably the same people who are saying there is no threat from Russia. How serious is the threat from China? I think China's aspirations are very clear. China has always seen itself as a superpower, as the most dominant superpower in the world, and they are, through various means and mechanisms, trying to recreate that. So as of February, the army attrition rate was up to 13.7%, which is a significant rise than in the past. Morale is reportedly pretty low. The top brass are warning of difficulties rebuilding capacity. Why does the army find itself in that position? Soldiers like to deploy, whether it's peacekeeping, humanitarian assistance, or whether it's conflict. They, that's what they train for. When all they see is a shrinkage in deployments, morale goes down, the question, well, why are we here, starts to rise. You compound that by then locking them into an MIQ for considerably longer than was ever intended. Having them do work that the Ministry of Health should have been doing itself for that protracted period just gutted them. And I know a lot of people left. I, and, and if you're doing that to the army at a time when you're building houses and building infrastructure, then you shouldn't be surprised when the Royal New Zealand engineers gets raided by Fletchers and by Higgins and by everyone else looking for digger operators, grader operators, truck drivers, you know, any plant and machinery mm. to build these roads, to build these bridges, to build the infrastructure. And carpenters for building, electricians, plumbers, drain layers. The military is one of the best, the army, and well, no, the military as a whole is one of the best providers of trained, competent, skilled tradespeople, and they are prime targets for the private sector who are always willing to pay them more. And if, by the way, you haven't increased the baseline to allow the Chief Defence Force to give a sensible pay rise to keep up with the cost of living, having taken away their low rental housing, because Treasury thinks that's a perk, living in Wairu, well, you've just sown all the seeds to undermine a re any reason for a soldier to stay. And that's what we're suffering. I was told that some trades were up to 37% attrition. And that's an appalling state. And it has to be redressed. What's your assessment of how the Defence Minister... Pini Henare is performing in his role. Jack, uh, I guess and the advantages that I had is that uh, I was in my dream job, the job I always wanted. And I knew I had, <laughs> I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand pairs of eyes serving um, military people and veterans watching me. They, I knew their expectation was that I had to do well. If I was wearing my granddaddy's medals and they contained a distinguished service medal, I would want to do everything I possibly could to make sure my granddaddy was proud of what I achieved as the Minister of Defence. Anything less than that would be untenable to me personally. But, you know, it comes down to how much you love the job and how much you love serving our women and our men in uniform. And to me, it was the greatest honour I could ever have. And uh, I was privileged to have that. Do you miss politics? I don't miss some of the rubbish. Um, I watch what's happening and, 
in which I was in a position to make a contribution around that cabinet table. Um, but I do th believe that, uh, you know, uh, you know, one door closes, I'm waiting for the next one to open. And if I could be involved uh, serving my country in a different way, uh, diplomatically, uh, that's, as I've told Anaya Mahuta, cousin, <laughs> if you're watching. <laughs> uh, so I know, there, I know how I'm seen in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, within the Five Eyes fraternity and within NATO. Um, it would be a good way to finish one's working life is to spend that time serving New Zealand in a different way. And when you look at things as they're unfolding, the Solomons look at climate change, look at the advances being made by China into the Pacific. If you look at the challenges that the Pacific Island community of nations are facing daily, uh, and then Ukraine and Europe as a whole, it's not as though there's no work to do out there, Jack. Mm. It's a question as to whether someone wants to make use of someone's skills and talent and desire to work, I guess. We spoke with Tracy Martin a month or two ago and she said that you and her have a bet <laughs> yeah, that's right. about whether or not New Zealand First will make it back into Parliament. You think they will? Well, I took that bet. Do you still think they will? And I shook my hand on it. And so <laughs> the $100 is on the table um, either way. Look, I think there's every possibility. I, don't, I believe Winston will stand again and he will, he will you know, run it up the flagpole. Uh, I won't be there. Um, I'm done. But uh, Why is that? Oh, Jack, I think, um, I guess I look back on my time, my service to New Zealand first through 1996 and the hell of 98 and um, 1999 and you, you, yeah, being booted out in 2008, coming back in 2014. And I think I served loyally. I think I served faithfully. Um, I didn't expect that I would be done over for my deputy leadership role by the man I supported most. So it's time for those young men that he talks about to take up the cudgels for New Zealand first. And, uh, and I wish them well. I certainly, you know, you can't be part of a family uh, and know so many of the founding members um, and form such good friendships and walk away from it bitter. But you can walk away a little disappointed and believing that you've done your time and now it's time for something else. So that's me. That's former Defence Minister Ron Mark. Thanks to all the staff at the Carterton RSA who let us use their special space. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it or mine. These are our main platforms. You can hit us up on email or contact us on Twitter or Facebook. Coming up, National isn't the only party talking about tax. Tax isn't uh, always exciting, uh, but I'll try and keep you awake. Oh, Minister, come on! Do better than that! <laughs> what is Labour really planning with tax? Hawke Mai, welcome back. Revenue Minister David Parker is planning to introduce a new bill to enshrine tax principles in New Zealand law. He says the principles are about fairness. And though Labor has ruled out new taxes this term, the bill might be used to justify new taxes in the future, particularly on the most wealthy New Zealanders. Terry Boucher is a tax specialist, and Janae Tibetraini is a politics and economics reporter for interest.co.nz and about to join the New Zealand Herald. Kia ora kōrua, thanks for being with us. Terry, I'm going to start with you. What is the problem that David Parker is talking about, and does he have a point? Marina, Jack. Uh, yeah, what he's talking about is the coherence or the, the principles under which we decide what are we going to tax and how. He has uh, an issue that he is, raises is, is our system fair? Does it actually really reflect the principles of a tax system as drafted by uh, Adam Smith back in 1776 and accepted by most art tax working groups down the years that he sets out four principles of it um, horizontal equity vertical equity uh, administrative efficiency and minimization of tax induced uh, distortions 
in the system. And those are well-established um, principles within a tax system. But the question is, is that really address the question of fairness? Mm. Is And the question he's raising is, people might earn income on capital, and it's not taxed, yet someone will be earning a salary and wages and it's fully taxed. Mm. And even with some cases you get, uh, for example, a, uh, someone has a bright line property subject to a bright line test, they sell within 10 years, they're taxed. They sell after 10 years, they're probably not taxed. So he's saying there's these distortions in the system and they're not fair. So we want to bring about principles to talk about the, how we um, design our tax system. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Adam Smith wasn't the only economist, if we're going to call the father of economics an economist, that uh, David Parker referenced. He also uh, referenced Thomas Piketty, and essentially Piketty's argument yeah. that money makes more money than labour, oh, money uh, is taxed at a lower rate than labour is taxed at the moment. Janae, I want to come to you on this. What did you make of David Parker's speech and of his plan? Well, Jack, David Parker was being David Parker and he didn't leave anyone guessing what he really thought, which was that economic um, income needs to be taxed. And he referenced Thomas Piketty, he referenced uh, Max Rashbrook from New Zealand and really sung their praises. Uh, this It was an interesting speech because it's, it's not often that you see a government minister um, saying something that they've clearly written. It hadn't been mm. sort of immensely PR'd. Um, I think, though, yeah, so this was very much a David Parker speech. Grant Robertson and Jacinda Ardern were far from the speech. Uh, the speech was done during a recess week, so journalists didn't have an opportunity to nail Grant Robertson on it and say, hey, do you also read Thomas Piketty? Do you think we should have a wealth tax? Um, so I think in some ways it was fairly contained to this being a David Parker thing, mm. um, not, and, and obviously a Labour Party concept as well. But I, I think um, it perhaps wasn't as potent as it would be if it was Grant Robertson, for example, making these comments. So do you think David Parker is going to introduce new taxes? I think what David Parker was doing was playing the long game, and I'm not the first person to say this, but it seems like he was trying to lay the groundwork for a change in conversation around mm. tax over time. Interestingly, he stressed so many times that, you know, Labour is not planning to tax you, they're not planning to tax you. He's thinking long term that, hey, if we get more data, we change the conversation, maybe that'll lay the ground for tax reform in the long term. And obviously, politically, I mean, this is a fairly risky move because it really gives National so much ammunition ammunition to mm. nail the government on tax, to go into the election and say, watch out, Labour's going to tax you, you don't know what they're going to throw at you. Mm. Um, so fairly interesting that David Parker got the speech past the Prime Minister's office um, and, and, you know, to open up that, that type of debate. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Terry? Because uh, our viewers will remember uh, very well, I'm sure, that Jacinda Ardern has ruled out a capital gains tax while she's Prime Minister. So if Labour were to try and introduce some new taxes on wealthy New Zealanders and asset-holding New Zealanders in the future, say in the next political term, what would those taxes look like, do you think? Well, there's a couple of options. There's always more ways to skin a, ta uh, skin a cat, so to speak, but um, there's a, a lot of focus. Um, you referenced Thomas Piketty. There's a focus on maybe an annual wealth tax. Um, over in Britain, they, the, the wealth taxes are used around the world. Switzerland collects quite a substantial amount of tax from, mm. wealth, from wealth taxes. So that's one option. Um, myself and Professor Susan St John have proposed what we call a fair economic return, which is looking at taxing housing above a threshold at a flat rate of uh, one or two percent uh, on that. So, and those sort of types of land value taxes, quasi land value taxes, are another option. Uh, and, but wealth taxes, we tax quite a lot of capital anyway. We mm. just—it's very inconsistent, and this is really where one of the discussions about tax principles we will see possibly come forward is this mm. question of coherence and integrity in the tax system is it as i mentioned earlier there's that you know a day might make a difference between being taxed on your sale of a property um, we have we tax uh, overseas investments differently to we taxed uh, shares in new zealand so there's a question about the integrity of the tax system the coherence of the tax system and that's long-standing. Um, I have a, in front of me a report from 1982 which says about mm. the certain forms of income uh, presently escape taxation for reasons which are often capricious. Right. Um, so, and then there's a the question of how does that help the integrity of the tax system? 
if you have this one person is taxed at uh, a full uh, on sale of a property but another person isn't how does that help people's perception of the integrity of the tax system Junaid mm. Is it going to be politically palatable for Labour to try and introduce a tax on the very wealthiest New Zealanders? Because I don't know them all personally, but I can imagine that wealthy New Zealanders aren't necessarily voting for Labour all the time anyway. No, and I, I do think that it's largely around the way that the messaging around this and the way that it's packaged up. And actually, David Parker in his speech did credit Bill English for the messaging that he had um, when the national-led government um, increased GST. So, so it might be around messaging. It's going. I, I don't think it's going to be hard to um, introduce a wealth tax. I mean, as soon as you say we're going to tax wealthy people, that's not so politically palatable. But if you say we're going to cut GST a little bit, like David Parker suggested might be something that he's, he uh, supports, and introduce some sort of tax on, on really on, on very wealthy people somehow, mm. that might be more palatable. I think it's about the mix, and it's about how you sell that message. Um, but I think, actually, we... We see how scared Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern got after the tax working group suggested we have a capital gains tax. And she said, no, we're not doing that. And then she said, we're going to rule out a capital gains tax you know, under her watch. That was a very strong comment. It really shows how nervous the government is about introducing new taxes. Interestingly, though, when they extended the Brightline test to 10 years and introduced uh, interest uh, limitation rules for property investors, those are two fairly big changes and the government mm. slipped them through quite quite quietly and um, without too much fanfare. So once again it's around messaging I think. Alright, thank you so much for your time. It is going to be fascinating to watch. That is Janae Tibshraini and tax consultant Terry Boucher. After the break on Q&A we ask Russian New Zealanders to tell us what it's like watching the awful events in Ukraine from afar. We welcome back to Q&A. The Race Relations Commissioner says Russian New Zealanders should cancel public celebrations of Russia's Victory Day next week. Victory Day is effectively Russia's national day and celebrates its victory alongside Allied forces in World War II. But as the war in Ukraine grinds on, Russian New Zealanders have found themselves in a difficult position. Here's Fina Owen. It's Friday night in Palmerston North, and old Ukrainian song is ringing out from the Masonic Hotel. It's performed by Russian Kiwi soprano Olga Shanina and organised by another Russian, Elisa Severina, to raise money for the people of Ukraine. I think this is a tragedy, what is going on with innocent people. And for me, as a human being, I, I, I ask myself, what can I do? And I think little something like this is better than nothing. The weeks following the Russian invasion of Ukraine saw an outburst of protest and vandalism and the counter-taunting of the symbols of war. Although still simmering, that heightened response has quietened here. But now there's real concern here and around the world that Russia's National Day, or Victory Day, coming up on the 9th of May, could inflame tensions. This is Victory Day last year in Wellington. Every year it's commemorated in various ways around most of our Russian communities. The issues around Victory Day will be discussed in the Race Relations Commission this coming week. Russian Day is a concern for the Ukrainian community um, and we have received around four um, infoline uh, complaints or matters uh, relating to the Russian day. I know that the Ukrainian community in Auckland has reached out to the Auckland City Council to get a permit to uh, do a march uh, soon, so uh, we have helped with that. The Wellington Russian Club, which is closely aligned to the Russian embassy, recently cancelled their Victory Day. They declined to speak to Q&A on camera. But on its social media, the Russian club told compatriots it's cancelling these celebrations because of Russophobia, supported, it said, by the New Zealand government and the media. 
And that climate, they said, may provoke aggression from Ukrainians and known locals. But Russians in some other centres are determined to go ahead with Victory Day. An Auckland Russian club plan a quiet wreath-laying, pointing out that the day marks Russia's victory over Nazi Germany in World War II, and New Zealand was on the same side. I know that we do um, have the freedom to um, celebrate culture and events um, in Aotearoa, uh, but I think I would encourage, um, for this period, this particular year uh, to postpone, uh, mainly because um, it could actually heighten tensions between the two communities. Friday morning at the Russian embassy in Wellington. There's graffiti on the wall. The postie arrives, and so do Russians on passport business. Across the road, this Kiwi couple are staging a quiet protest. They've flown up from the South Island to do it. Have you come over from Blenheim especially for Just this? For the day. Yep, flew across this morning, fly back tonight. They approach the Russians who arrive on consular business. They're allowed to express what they... Yes. Don't be aggressive. aggressive to the people because we do know many Ukrainians who've been saying that all Russians have to die. Why do I have to die? It's I haven't done anything. Russia's assault continues and so must our pressure. The sanctions imposed in March instantly froze the transfer of Russian pensions to three to four hundred elderly Russians living here. Hundreds more rely on other pensions from the Federation. The Russian embassy confirmed to Q&A that pensions paid to Russians in New Zealand were being disrupted by the sanctions. In another post, it advised those pensioners to seek compensation from the New Zealand government. MSD report that a handful of Russian pensioners have applied for help and if they're residents, they may qualify for a top-up or a hardship grant. Yeah. Along with supporting Ukrainians in their grief, Ming Foon asks New Zealanders to remember that many Russians have come here to leave Russian politics behind. A lot of people choosing to actually change the place, like, you know, just to escape what has been happening there for ages now. Now they find they haven't escaped Russian politics at all. Well, do people ask you about the war um, as a people, Russian? Yeah, people yes, asking, people yeah. asking. Lots of people asking, where are you from? What do you think about the war? What do you think about the government and stuff like this? And what do you say? We just say that we are Russians. We not agree with the war, but we are Russians, so we can't do anything with it. We're proud to be Russians, but unfortunately, we're not proud of the actions, we're yeah. proud of the actions but we can't do anything. We just we live in the New Zealand. Pena Owen with that report. After the break, the Kiwi media executive who worked with Elon Musk will ask what the world's richest man really wants with Twitter. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Elon Musk, the world's richest man, says he's buying Twitter to defend democracy. But could he have more sinister motives for getting his hands on one of the world's most influential social media platforms? New Zealander Hamish McKenzie is at the intersection of media and Musk. He's the co-founder of subscription giant Substack Media and he previously worked alongside Elon Musk at Twitter. Hamish is joining us from San Francisco this morning. Kia ora, thanks for being with us. What was your reaction to Elon Musk's takeover? Fascination, entertaining. I'm watching to see it all like, unfold and kind of enjoying the drama of it. What do you think he wants with Twitter? I think Elon is like genuinely morally motivated. Like with Tesla, he thinks that the world needs to urgently get off fossil fuels. So we need to switch to an electric car based um, transport economy. And with SpaceX, he thinks it's imperative that humans have uh, a chance to colonize uh, other planets. And so he started a, a space exploration company. With Twitter, I genuinely think that he believes it's an incredibly important uh, communications tool, it's an incredibly important uh, platform, and it's fundamental to society and democracy, and he, he wants to do the things that he thinks is going to protect it and keep it vital. See, that's a really interesting perspective. You say he's, he's uh, influenced by mor for moral reasons to want to wanna take over Twitter. I mean, I suppose another argument might be that he has developed Tesla and he's developed SpaceX because he likes power and because he likes money. Is there a possibility he could have more sinister motives? 
everything's possible and usually you don't know everyone's uh, total reasons for doing thing uh, doing what they're doing um but i'm not sure if he actually did start tesla to make money or start a, a rocket company to stay start uh, to make money uh, those are kind of the stupidest things to start if you're trying to make money you're destined to fail they cost a lot to do and uh, not many people succeed um so i do think that it's there are going to be some convenient things about owning a massive communications tool like that uh, but i don't think that's really his primary motivation as someone with a high profile role in a high profile media company how important is Twitter to the media ecosystem? Yeah, I think it's very important at the moment, um, not necessarily in a good way, because it's not the largest social media platform. It's pretty small compared to uh, YouTube or Facebook. But the people who are on it are the elites, the, the journalists and all the people who work in media, the politicians, the academics, all the sort of intelligentsia and those people go out and make decisions that affect the world in a huge way and they're, they're getting a lot of their information from twitter and a lot of their entertainment from twitter yeah that's interesting it's not necessarily the biggest social media platform but it is incredibly influential and perhaps by way of example i will pull up a little page right now of course we all know the former president donald trump was a big tweeter he hasn't been for a while because of course his account has been suspended and there is some speculation that if elon musk were to take over twitter on free speech principles, he would allow Donald Trump to use the platform. What do you think Elon Musk will do if indeed this takeover succeeds? I don't expect that he's going to go crazy with their content moderation policies. Some of their content guidelines there because you have to comply with the law. And he said he wants to keep free speech within the bounds of the law and whatever jurisdiction he's operating in. Um, I do think Trump will come back. I think there's a very strong likelihood. I don't think that people's Twitter timelines are going to get much more dystopian than they already are. It's a very dystopian place. Um, but I think uh, he will act to try and loosen the bounds on what's allowed on the platform. Right. In the interests of free speech, as he sees them. How do you deal with those concerns and the tensions around free speech when it comes to Substack? Well, it's an interesting contrast with Twitter because we think a lot of these problems that people are pinning on free speech uh, being too loose or whatever the, the claim is, are not actually to do with the content moderation policy or philosophy of these companies, but instead to do with the system that they're operating on. And Twitter is a terrible system if what you're trying to do is foster healthy discourse that's uh, based on advertising and that model demands engagement which means that you're trying to get people addicted as much as possible to this news feed and then you're promoting a bunch of stuff that spikes engagement so stuff that does stuff that's really contentious it's really um polarizing that's most likely to provoke outrage is the stuff that does really well with substack our content moderation approach is to build a totally different system that gives people much more control and so to follow someone on substack you actually have to go sign up and be on their email list and you can easily like, extricate yourself from that if you want mm. and we try to be non-interventionist it's much more like a blogging platform like wordpress than something like twitter which is uh, the best propaganda amplification machine ever in invented hang on t t tell me about that last comment why is it the best propaganda amplification machine ever invented <laughs> well if you're looking to spread your propaganda then nothing is more conducive to that than this massive machine that will beam your messages into uh, everyone's brains on, in an instant and can, be, and can be multiplied and amplified to the tune of like, you know, tens of millions of people seeing your thing within, within 20 seconds of you farting it out of your brain. Um, and, and, and because it's so easily gamed, it's like a, it's a, it's a game with words and emotions. You can, as a propagandist can go in there and it'll, press on the buttons and um, make people enraged or delighted or whatever it is to spread your message and it's very effective. That's really interesting. See, see in, in Europe at the moment they are pursuing reforms that would crack down on some of the big social media platforms and uh, look to regulate their content much more. How is that likely to impact whatever plans Elon Musk might have for Twitter? might make his life more difficult in Europe. I don't think it's going to solve any of the problems associated with Twitter. I think those problems like with Facebook and Instagram, uh, based at the business model level, and there's nothing that regulation can do about it, really. Just little patches. That's interesting. Uh, you said that on Substack, people are able to 
regulate the content that they receive because they have to be really deliberate in the way they sign up to someone's substack. And on Twitter, they're sort of bombarded with information from lots of different quarters. So is one of the changes Elon Musk might introduce around the algorithm and around the information that we as individual Twitter users receive? Yeah, I think one of the things that could be really exciting about what Musk might do is that he might open it back up and allow people to customize their experience uh, to a much greater degree. And so it might be you take your choice of algorithms that decide how your content is sorted in your, in your newsfeed. Or you might, it might be that you can sort of create your own Twitter experience, totally removed from the mainstream Twitter experience. And in the, in the early days of Twitter, there was a lot more room to try that sort of thing and other companies building applications to let people have more control over their experience. And Twitter started shutting down on that because they needed to build a huge advertising business and have more control. So I, Elon has said he doesn't care about the economics, I believe him. <laughs> um, I, th I could expect him to take a much more sort of open source approach, which could be good. Right, so, so there is a possibility that Elon Musk will make Twitter a better place. There's a possibility, yeah, it's a controversial <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's Elon Musk like? I know he's a, I know he's a divisive character, but, but what are your impressions of him? He's an extreme personality, and so, you get the strong goods and the strong bads with that. And, you know, at his best, he's extremely charming and uh, thoughtful, witty. And at his worst, he's a complete asshole, the worst asshole you could ever be, hope to be in a room with. Um, yeah, but he's a complicated character, as many people are. And I think that you know, with the good comes some bad. It's just hard to, hard to uncouple those things. Mm. Should we be at all concerned that one of the world's most powerful media platforms could be in the hands of someone who you say has an extreme personality? I think we should be concerned. I think there's a, like a worrying trend in general, but that trend has been playing out for a while. If you're worried about uh, Elon Musk owning Twitter, you should really be worried about Jeff Bezos controlling Amazon, itself a huge media property, or Larry uh, Page and Sergey Brin owning and controlling YouTube, or Mark Zuckerberg owning Facebook and Instagram, these giant properties. I think, yeah, these are concerns, but this is not a new concern. So that kind of uh, angle of criticism is a little bit like, well, why, why weren't you making noise already about these things? Mm. If Elon Musk takes over Twitter, what will it mean for Substack? It's interesting. Twitter is kind of inextricably tied to Substack or vice versa at the moment because a lot of writers find their audiences on Twitter and then move them over to Substack where they have a, a better and sort of quieter, calmer experience and, and make their money that way. Um, Twitter has tried to compete with Substack. They have a competing product that hasn't gone very well so far. It's possible that Elon improves Twitter to the extent where it becomes a more interesting competitor. But uh, I think it's more likely it's just going to be more of the same. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Hamish. It's really interesting speaking with you. We appreciate it. That is Hamish McKenzie. He is the co-founder of Substack and he has a book. His book is Insane Mode. How Elon Musk's Tesla sparked an electric revolution to end the age of oil. Ko mutu. That is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. Nā mihiki a koutou i karere. Thanks for your messages this morning. Hey te rā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.